Gospel of Mark. We're in the first chapter. We're about four weeks in. And if you look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and that is the theme of the entire book. It's the reason why Mark is writing. If you get verse 1, you get it all. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is two things. He is Son of God and he is Messiah. But as we look down, the first 13 verses are really an intro and a setup. There are three scenes in the first 13 verses that Mark wants us to be clued into. So when we get on to what Jesus did, they'll make sense. You got to remember Mark is writing 20, 30 years after Jesus. And so these are three little scenes that most people didn't know about. They weren't privy to. But it's important because Mark has one thing in mind. You and I need to know who Jesus is. Would you agree? We need to know who he is. So last week, if you were here and Dom did a great uh, job teaching, we looked at the first scene that was John the Baptist. Who is he and, and it, what did he come to do? He came to prepare the way of the Lord. So Mark starts with this quote from Exodus, from, from Isaiah, from Malachi, this, this throw together quote that leads us to know that before Messiah, before God comes again, he's going to send someone so that when God comes, we are ready. That was scene number one. Well, tonight, we're going to look at two more scenes in verses 9 through 13, and then next week, we're actually going to begin to see what Jesus came to do and say. So let's jump down to verse 9. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. What a fascinating way to start. Now, where was Jesus born, according to Mark? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem. But does Mark tell us that? No, he doesn't tell us. What was Jesus like when he was a child? I mean, was he a straight-A student? He's the son of God. I mean, how do you fail a test? Well, you're the son of God. I mean, you, just, you, you know, what, what, what was he like? I mean, did he, was he Nike? Was he Adidas? Was he PC or Mac? We don't know. Well, we know from wisdom he was Mac. That's just a wisdom issue, but we don't know anything. We don't know anything about the early years. As a matter of fact, Mark, the first thing we get about Jesus is he's at the River Jordan where John the Baptist is calling people back to allegiance to their God, Yahweh. Follow God. God's coming. And then Jesus shows up and he's baptized. So these next two scenes are going to shape a little bit about what Jesus came to preach and proclaim, but we're getting the setup tonight. So we don't know exactly what Jesus is like, but we know he was born in Nazareth. Now, what's fascinating about Nazareth? Nothing. It's not, we don't know, as a matter of fact, it, it takes scholars forever to find out where Nazareth even was. Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not like Jesus was born in Tokyo, or in Sydney, or in LA, or London, or New York. He does not come from a big place. He, does, he comes from an obscure little village, but yet he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. 
Mark is setting us up out of nowhere, so to speak. It almost sounds like Superman, like, you know, he dropped from wherever planet in the middle of middle of America. Or, I don't know, where, where is Superman from? Is it Southern Illinois? Where is it? Oh, Krypton. Well, thank you very much. Superman's from Krypton. But he lands in the Midwest somewhere, and out of small-town America emerges this superhero. Well, Jesus isn't Superman, don't get me wrong, but he comes from nowhere, which is fascinating because all of the important prophets, leaders, kings come from a big family line of leaders, come from big cities, and Jesus comes from obscurity. So we don't know who this guy is, we don't know what his background is, but Jesus emerges from Nazareth in Galilee in the north of Israel, and he's baptized by John, verse 9, in the Jordan River. What happens at the baptism? We see three things according to Mark. Now, a little aside. Part of the challenge we have is we have how many Gospels? One, two, three, four, or five? Four. Okay, like, is there a fifth Gospel? No, that's heresy. There are four Gospels that are approved by the church as authentic and written by people who were there or with someone who was there and wrote down for them. So, we got to read Mark, although it's good to go back and forth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark tells us things others don't, and Mark holds things out. We want to read Mark for Mark, because in the others, we know more information. Mark just tells us three things. Look at the first thing, number one, uh, out of verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. So heaven is torn and ripped open. Now, what does that mean? Heaven torn, uh, in, in the early days, especially the first century, people didn't say the word God. Jews didn't use the name of God often out of respect. He's so holy, he's so big. We don't use his name. So they use heaven because heaven is God's space. And so out of heaven, heavens are ripped open. God is about to speak. And Mark is pulling because he is steeped in the Bible before TV, people read. Would you agree? You're like, what? Did people did that? Yeah. And on, on, on sometimes on paper and not on your Kindle. But, but people were immersed. They knew their Bible. And so the second he writes, heaven torn open, you're immediately thinking Isaiah. Now, we're not thinking it because we don't know the Bible as well as they did. But in Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 64, verse 1, this is how Isaiah puts it. Oh, that you would rend, tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Mark, his first thing is Jesus comes from Nazareth, he's baptized, and heaven rips open. It's like what Isaiah was asking God to do. God, come down and visit us. And so the word here in, in Greek for rend the heavens or tear the heavens is schizo, and it's the same Greek word that's a translation of the Hebrew word in Isaiah 64 for rend. Same word, same point. Isaiah is asking God to come, and Mark is saying God has come in Jesus. Now, what does it mean to tear the, the uh, rend the heavens open? Uh, it's that God would speak. This is a setup, uh, you know, ta-da, he's arrived. And so rip the heavens, God speak. And that's exactly what happens in the account that Mark gives us of the baptism of Jesus. Now, around 250 BC, so Isaiah is writing about 700 years or so before Jesus. But about 250 years, we have a piece of something 
um, called the Testimony of Levi. It's not in the Bible, but it's a writing of a Jewish writer. And I want to throw it up on the screen. Isaiah is the first person to talk about the rending, the tearing of the heavens and God coming down. But that theme gets picked up. And this is what it says. The heavens will be opened and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac. That's going to be an interesting one in a moment. And the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him. The spirit of understanding and sanctification will rest upon him in the water. For he shall give the majesty of the Lord to those who are his sons in truth forever. Heaven opened, voice of a father, Abraham, Isaac, glory, spirit, water, sons. So this idea of this is a plea for God and that God is going to come. Now, what do we see? Let's just read the verse again. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit, we saw spirit there, descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. Do you see what's happening here? There's this expectation that God's gonna come. There's been 400 years, 450 years of silence. There's no more prophets in the land. You remember from last week, Israel feels like it's still in bondage. It's still in slavery. It hasn't been set free they were rebellious in previous generations. God punished them, sent them away. And even though some are living in the, in the land that God had promised them, they still feel restless. They're still enslaved, but there's this expectation that the Spirit is going to come. And Mark opens his gospel with Jesus and the ripping open of the heavens and the speaking voice of God. Everything Isaiah and others were looking for is now emerging in the person of Jesus. Because the Jews commonly believed in the first century that because they had 400 years of no, prof no prophets, no prophetic writing, that the heavens, God's space, was shut. And God was not speaking to his people. And so now Mark declares with force, heavens open, God is speaking. Everything that we've been looking for has now been answered and it's tied to a person. They were looking for a prophet, for a leader, for a king, for a Messiah. And it's Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee who experiences this. What do we see? So the first thing we saw is that the heavens are, are, are torn open. The second thing we see is in the middle of verse 10, the spirit descends on him like a dove. I don't think white dove, like a little flapping wings. Oh, gentle Jesus, like, ooh, the spirit floating down. This is an allusion to Genesis 1, verse 2. And we said it in kind of weeks past. There's a translation from, from Hebrew into Aramaic, the common language of the day, uh, of the Hebrew scriptures that puts Genesis 1, 2, that the Spirit hovered over the waters like a dove. So this isn't random, like what's with the bird and Jesus? This is very specific. Like in creation, this huge creative force, God was coming and shaping everything that exists. And now in the same way, the spirit, the same spirit that was there at creation is now coming upon Jesus. Now, the NIV, which I have here, says descending on him like a dove. Literally, it's the spirit was descending into him. Now, for English sake, that just doesn't make sense. The spirit descending into him. So they put descending on him. The point is kind of the same, but there's a little twist. What Mark wants us to know is the Spirit infused the king, the prophet, 
and the priest, the spirit is now in and has collided in Jesus. And so anything that we had wanted from God, anything we wanted to hear, anything we wanted to know, you don't have to turn to anyone other than Jesus from Nazareth. And then the third thing, we have the voice from heaven. A voice comes from heaven, verse 11. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. We've got to remember because we look at Jesus looking back and we have our own ideas about him. Uh, Jesus is God, yes or no? Okay. Jesus is a man, yes or no? Yes. And this is the mystery of, of our faith. That God didn't just send someone and say, hey, do my work for me. God comes in Jesus. And so Jesus is a man. And Jesus, the man, who is God, but he is the man. He hears the voice of the Father. You are my son. And this is the most encouraging thing that anyone could hear, the approval of their father. I cannot tell you how many young people that I get the privilege of talking to who are still walking around wounded. And when you start to talk, and this isn't psychobabble, this is reality, who've been either hurt maliciously because of, you know, whether a, a dad who oppressed or a dad who spoke evil, but oftentimes it's just a dad who says nothing. But Jesus, the man, hears the validating voice of his father. You are my son. We're united in this work because Jesus is about to jump into action. He's about 30 years old. He only has three years of activity and he's gonna go to the cross and he's gonna rise again and he's gonna save. You're my son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, now this just seems like, oh, God is nice, right? <laughs> no. If you know the Hebrew scriptures, which Mark does, he hints at at least three different scriptures from the Hebrew writings. He's evoking something. He's pulling something out. When Yahweh speaks, he's not randomly talking. He's, he's repeating what he's already said. Three references. The first one is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8 says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you're my son today. I've become your father. Ask me. I will make the na nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your, your possession. I'm kind of going fast and furious because I want to get to the application but you need to know this, Psalm 2 is known as a messianic psalm. It's, it's a psalm that points to Messiah. And there's this father-son relationship in it. One is going to come. It's a psalm that was used at the installation of a new king in Israel. It speaks of the passing of rule from one king, father, to the next king, son. And there's this expectation that God's deliverer, whoever's going to come to rescue Israel from their mess, He's going to be like the son of a king, and he's going to rule. So you are my son. Today I've become your father. There's a hint from God that's not subtle. It's loud, if you know the Hebrew scriptures. The second reference is from Genesis 22, 2. Uh, and maybe you want to write that down, and you could read it in context. God said, and this is Abraham and Isaac. Remember the testimony of Levi? You'll be like a father to son, like Abraham to Isaac. Well, Genesis 22, God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. This is this epic story 
Early on in the making of this people who are going to follow God called Israel, God asked Abraham to take, they were barren, Sarah couldn't conceive a child. God gives him a child and says, great, take the child and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Obey me to the full, Abraham, and I will bless you. And that's exactly what Abraham does. He goes to the mountain with his son Isaac. Take your son, your one and only son. Son, early allusions to what's going to happen. And many people think that that Genesis 22 narrative is an early picture of what is going to happen in Jesus. And that the father is going to lay and sacrifice his son. You know from the story of Genesis 22 that the angel of the Lord stops and says, no, wow, you've trusted me. Thus, I will bless you. What God was looking for was a man to be obedient to God's way unto death. When you look at the life of Jesus, isn't that exactly what you see? Jesus is the son who obeys the will of the father, except not like in Genesis 22 where God stops. In Jesus, it's gonna go all the way and one person's gonna take the sin of us all. And the third illusion is Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit. There's a prophecy of what's to come. I'll put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. So in the one phrase here, Mark 1, 9 through 13, in the one statement of God, you're my son whom I love and I'm well pleased and the spirit coming on him, it's a smashing of huge pointers in the Hebrew Bible to what God had wanted and longed to do. So Mark starts off with a bang. You don't know about kids. You don't know about him growing up. All you know is Jesus is Messiah. He's the son of God. Mark does not waste time. He wants you to know what Jesus has come to do. So that's scene, in a sense, number two. Last week, uh, John the Baptist is a setup for Jesus. And then and the baptism is a setup for Jesus' kingship. He's the son of God and he's Messiah. And then the third scene is in verse 12 and 13. Let's look at it again. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. At once or immediately. Mark is going to use this Greek word 40 times in 16 chapters. Do the math. At least twice a chapter it's showing up. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Remember from our overview a couple of weeks ago, half of the book of Mark is about three years in the life of Jesus. The second half is about two weeks. He's pushing us. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Immediately upon hearing the words of affirmation from his Father, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit that is now in Jesus. The Spirit immediately sends him out to the wilderness, to the desert. The Spirit ekbalo, say it with me. The Spirit ekbalo, he throws him out. He casts him out. The very same word when Jesus is casting out demons, Jesus ekbalos the demons. He casts them out. It's with force. It's not a, hey, Jesus, there's a timeshare by the river. Like, you know, you could float, you could fish, and, and maybe there'll be a test or two. no. Immediately, you're my son whom I love and you I'm well pleased. You've got a mission, Jesus. Immediately throws him out. Does Jesus not want to go to the wilderness? That's not the point. The point he's making is Jesus is king 
and kings defeat enemies. And that's why we see the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So Jesus is in the desert and he confronts Satan immediately. Spirit in him. The Father sends the Spirit into the Son, the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And what is the first thing that they do? They go to win. Because Mark is all about an epic battle. Star Wars, small potatoes. Gospel of Mark is about the story of the kingdom of Satan being crushed by the creator of the universe. This is big. This is no fairy tale. This is a cosmic battle that starts when Jesus is recognized as Messiah. What is Messiah going to do? He's not going to defeat Rome the way they expected. Everyone wanted a human king to come kick out Rome, kill Caesar, and install a Jewish king, which was their history. No, instead, he's going to go against the king that is unseen. And in destroying the work of Satan, he's going to bring all people, not just Jews, but people like you and me, who have no heritage, who have no Abraham in our background, and he's going to bring about a massive victory. And if you are here, and you've chosen to follow this Jesus, and you've received the gift of life, and you've been forgiven of sin, and you've received the Holy Spirit, and you're choosing day by day to learn of him and walk in him, it's all because of Mark chapter 1 and this wilderness experience. In Mark, he only confronts Satan directly one time. When Jesus defeats, he didn't need to repeat, there ain't no round two. He goes and he confronts Satan. Now he'll fully do it at the cross. What Satan was not aware of is that the Son of God would fully take, if he had read the Bible and understood it, he would have known it. That, that Son of Man had come to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 8, 35 will tell us. And he'll do it in Mark chapter 15. He'll go to that cross. But for now, Satan recognizes that God has sent this messenger, this Jesus. And so what happens in the desert? Mark doesn't care to tell us. <laughs> I love it. No details. Total guy. Gone for eight hours. Comes home. Why well, says, what'd you, you know, how was it? What'd you do? Well, it was all right. It was good. You, you were gone for eight hours. Like, what, you know, what'd you, guys, what'd you guys talk about? Stuff. <laughs> you know, guys don't get into the juicy details, at least most guys. And, you know, they just, so Mark is like writing. He's driven. He's like, I want to get to my game. Leave me alone, woman. Anyway, aside, you know, that has nothing to do with the Bible, but has everything to do with Sundays. So, um, so who, is, who is Satan? So he goes to confront Satan. Mark doesn't tell us, but we see in the Gospels, I'm going to pull out four things about Satan. We ought to know there's more in, in the letters and in Revelation, but just from the Gospels, this is what we know. Number one, Satan is a fallen creature. Luke tells us the 72 disciples returned with joy. They've been casting out demons, no small feat. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, we don't know. The Bible actually does not tell us the essence of who Satan is. Some would say, well, he's a fallen angel. There's church history on that. It's actually not in the Bible. He masquerades as an angel of light, but doesn't, we don't know his substance. We don't know his background. And the reason we don't know is because it's irrelevant to us. We don't need to know. 
Satan, though, is a created being, and somehow he fell out of favor with God. Second thing we need to know is Satan brings temptation. Satan's job is to test our allegiance to our creator. So Matthew 4, uh, just using a few verses thrown together, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the devil, uh, Diablos, Satan, Satan, they're both speaking of the same thing. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. So devil, Satan, same person. Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So it's, it's Satan's in his DNA to, to push. Remember the serpent in Genesis 3, the beginning of sin, is this serpent, this evil one comes and says, Did God really say? That's what he does. And if you think he has stopped, you are sadly mistaken. If you're duped into thinking that Satan is not around and at work in and outside of the church, in and outside of God's people, then you're a very enlightened Western European fool. Most of the world recognizes what people in the West have been duped by. There is more to life than what is material. There is more to life than what you see, feel, taste, touch. Science is great. It's one sliver of all of reality. And Satan and demonic and evil are all real and they are behind the things that we see. Now, the third thing we need to know, Satan is against Jesus and his gospel. So Satan tries to come against all that Jesus is going to do. Mark 4, we'll see it in a few weeks. The farmer, is, Jesus is telling a parable, the farmer sows the word. Some people like to see it along the path, but the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and what? Takes away that word that was sown in him. The, the, the seed is the word of God. The word of God goes out and Satan is looking to snatch. Whenever you are learning things that are right and true and good, Satan and demons are longing to say, that's not real. Or yeah, that's to his opinion. Trying to steal the effectiveness of the truth because the truth always sets people free. And fourthly, and most important for us, because Satan against Jesus, in a sense, for us, who cares? I mean, that's divine versus evil and created big. That's not me. But the fourth thing we need to know is Satan tries to influence how we think and how we act. And so uh, Peter, one of the most close and faithful of all the followers, Peter is not a flake. He is the only one to get out on the water and walk to Jesus. He is full of courage. But he doesn't recognize what is happening behind the scenes. Simon Siner, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, shake you up and mess you up. But I pray for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So, so Satan is not just after Jesus. He's after all Jesus' followers. Are you encouraged yet? <laughs> Sunday night, Satan's out to get you. That's only part of the story. Let's go back to the text. So Spirit, verse 12, send him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 40 days, no big deal for us. Again, Mark is packing in his intro all this expectation from Isaiah. Spirit of God's gonna come. This is Jesus. Psalm 2, this is Jesus. 40 days is this epic number throughout the Hebrew scriptures talking about this fullness or completeness. 
Israel, the nation, was in the desert for how many years? 40 years. This complete time. They were in the wilderness to be what? To be tested. It's funny. Jesus is in the wilderness to be tested. Did Israel pass the test in the wilderness? No, they fail. Jesus passes the test. Jesus is what Israel could not be, what the people of God could not be. They failed, but Jesus never fails. Even Moses, the great leader, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law of God how many days? 40 days. Elijah, the great prophet who didn't die, who is taken up into heaven. Hello. Not a bad way to go. I mean, he's taken up into heaven. He is led by God in the desert towards Mount Horeb for how many days? 40 days. This big number, the people of God, 40 years. Moses, the leader, 40 days. Elijah, the prophet, 40 days. Jesus is out there in the complete time, and he does it right. He's tempted by Satan, but he passes the test. And then verse 13, it just goes like sideways. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. Here's a weird one. Read the Bible and you start going, what? I mean, did Jesus have a dog, a cat, a rhino, a lion, tigers and bears? Oh my. I mean, I don't, what's with the wild animals? Uh, two opinions on this. And I don't know exactly where I'll land, so I'll just give you both. And I'll trust you'll do your research. Um, one, some people think this is a creation reference. He's out with the wild animals in the wilderness. Remember, Adam was sent by God to bring order to chaos. God creates the world. He says, Adam, tame it. Take it forward. And so some see this as a reference to Jesus out in the wilderness, this untamed land with these wild animals. Jesus is talked about in Hebrews and other parts in the New Testament as a second Adam. Adam was perfect, created in the image of God, no sin. Jesus is created in the womb of Mary, but he's without sin. He's perfect. Adam sins. Second Adam, Jesus does not. That's why humans, us, can enjoy life with God because Jesus, the second Adam, has come and where the first one broke it, Jesus follows God fully and now I can live in Jesus and enjoy the blessing of one who's close to God. That's one opinion. I'm not so sure. Second one is uh, that Mark connects the temptation of Christians in Rome. He was out in the wilderness with the wild animals. One uh, historian, Tacitus, tells us about uh, the persecution by Emperor Nero, and he writes this. They were covered with the hides, Christians, of wild beasts and torn to pieces like dogs. Speaking of what happened in the Colosseum and elsewhere, where Christians, followers of Jesus, were not figuratively killed. They were destroyed. And they were covered in the skins of wild animals so that other animals could come and attack and kill them. And they did it so that the Roman citizens could have a good laugh. You think a 30-minute sitcom is stupid. Imagine your entertainment being the, the gory death of other people who've done nothing wrong except to claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And so some people think, and I think this is probably closer to it, that it's a reference. Marx is on the early part. Hey, Jesus is out there with the wild beast. He's being tempted. He's being tested just like you are. Because remember, Mark is writing at a time where Christians are under severe persecution in Rome. 
Jesus is tested. And then the last thing we see here in verse 13 is the angels attended him. What is that all about? Well, I always thought that this was like at the end of a you know, big fight, if you ever watch boxing, at the end of each round, you know, the, the coach goes in the little corner, does a little squeezy, maybe you don't watch boxing, theoretically, like in the little water bottle in the mouth, and then they just pat their eyes with like Vaseline or whatever, so the punches will kind of slide off of them. And then he's like, they say, yo, Tony, you're a great fighter, man. You got him. You got him on the road. You know, they, you know that, that the angels were like, at the, end, at the end of this, like, Jesus, you got him. You got him. Take him out. And, and I... This is how I think. <laughs> I apologize. But uh, it's vivid. Um, but, but the angels attended him wasn't like at the end of the round or the end of the 40 days. It was all throughout. It's in the imperfect tense, irrelevant to know, but it means that all throughout the attack of Satan against Jesus and the battle, the angels are there. What a beautiful statement. God did not abandon his son in the desert and say, all right, I'm going to watch. Take out Satan. Do it for us. No, the angels are there with him, standing with him. And it's an encouraging word for anyone who's going through a tough time to know that if you're in Jesus, you are never alone. Never alone. You're never by yourself. You may not see God's presence. You may not see God's goodness. You may not experience and feel it. And that's okay to feel God's presence and closeness. But whether you feel it or not, Jesus has got your back. And here we see that the father has his sons back all of the way. Now, like, what's the point here? What what do we learn out of this? What can we take away looking at this early part, these early scenes? John the Baptist comes. Jesus is affirmed by the father and then sent out into the wilderness. A couple of things that I think may be helpful for all of us. Number one, it's this. What's true of Jesus is now true of you. Uh, This isn't theory. We don't study the Bible, just get smarter or feel better about ourselves. We come to learn the ways of God. And you, I can't string it tonight. You read the New Testament letters written by Paul and others. When they were going back looking at the life of Jesus, the conclusion they came to, which is right, is that because Jesus came to do the mission of God and then brought disciples and sent them on the mission of God, the things that happened for Jesus now happen to us. The things that are true of Jesus are now true of us. And what an encouraging word. Now, a couple of things about Jesus. Jesus Jesus is called by God. He's called out. and, And God, the Father, affirms that Jesus is tested. It is interesting how these two stories collide, there's no gap, immediately sent. Have you found in your life that the greater attempt that you make to follow this Jesus, the more trouble comes? I think following Jesus is probably the most dangerous thing that you could do. As a matter of fact, I'd recommend, unless you can man up or woman up, there's no way you're going to make it. This is hard. Come to church to learn Satan's out to get you and this is hard. But look at the life of Jesus. But here's the good thing. Oh, this is so great. He's called by God. Jesus is faithful. So this is the last attack that you see by Satan to Jesus. Now, Jesus talks about Satan in the Gospel of Mark, but this is it. Jesus takes out Satan in chapter one, and then he goes on and picks off the smaller demons in the rest of the book. Jesus always wins over the work 
of Satan. So now, what's true of Jesus is now true of me. I, if I'm a follower of Jesus, have been called by God to the mission of God. You have been given something to do. You are not an ordinary Christian. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as an ordinary. Well, I, don't, I didn't go to Bible school. I don't do this stuff. I just, I'm just trying to sludge through and work my job and keep my marriage alive and raise my kids. You are not ordinary. You are in Jesus. The Spirit of God that came into Jesus, that same Spirit lives where? In you. You've been called by God. You've been infused by the Spirit of God. You've been set out by God. And Jesus is faithful. What is true of Jesus is now true of me. Do I mess up? Yes. Is Jesus faithful? Yes. So I am not like that child who is wondering if dad's going to come home and beat the snot out of me. My dad never did that. That may have been your experience. If it is, I am so sorry. I am not out to just do so much good. Jesus, do you see what I'm doing? Do you see it? Do you see? I just want you to receive me and love me. God says to us, you are my children. The whole drama of the coming of God was because he loves us. You do not have to prove to God that, that if you love him enough, he'll love you. He already loves you. And I think some of us spin out of control and get discouraged in this walk in following Jesus because we wonder if, if it's going to make any difference. God, I'm not big enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not enough. And God says to the son, you are my son whom I love and you I am well pleased. What had Jesus done up to this point? Nothing. He had done nothing. But he was and is the Son of God. And that's the beautiful thing. You don't have to do anything to prove. That doesn't mean, oh, good, God, thank you, I could fluff off. No. The right response when you realize the love of God is to want to please him and to want to live on mission with this Jesus. A couple of questions when you think about that. If Jesus is called to them, what have you been called to? What things is God stirring in your soul? Is he stirring anything? Let me ask this. Are you asking God, what is it that you've created me for? What is it that you want me to do? If you're a mom or a dad, let me answer it for you. He's called you to raise up kids that know and love Jesus. Now, how are you going to do that? Follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, your children have a greater opportunity to follow Jesus than any other way. You could send them off to a Christian camp, Christian school, you could tat everything on them, Christian, Christian, Christian. If a child sees a mom and dad who don't follow Jesus but claim to, chances are they may get turned off as well. Just follow Jesus. You've been called, you, you're being tested. Some of you right, right now are going through the biggest of challenges and struggles and pains and you're not alone. Jesus is tested. Do you know this? Jesus had to pass the test because he was a man. And every man or woman has to prove whether or not they will obey the will of the Father. And so Jesus goes out and he could have chosen to disobey. He was God, but he was a man. And so in the same way, all of us are given these beautiful things called trials temptations, struggles. They're the gift of God. Doesn't feel like it, oh, at the time, let me tell you. It never feels like it. 
But if you'll take a step back and look at the life of Jesus, you'll realize that God does this out of love to see if we are really his. And so you have the opportunity to live tested and faithful to God. So if you're discouraged and down because of what you're going through, be encouraged. This is not the end. He sent his angels to attend after them. God has not left you alone. God has not abandoned you. Rather, God is looking for you to lean on him. And if you'll do that, my friend, even though you've failed some tests, today's another day to pass. is isn't one test and you're out. Life is a series of highs and lows, peaks and valleys, and we need them both. Let me tell you, if your life was easy your whole life, it's called spoiled. And show me a child who has had a mom and dad who said, you can have whatever you want, whenever you want it, you're the ruler of the universe, and you are showing a child who is ready to self-destruct. We need trials and temptations. So friend, you're not alone, and God hasn't given up on you. So what are you going through tonight? I, I, was, um, I got a friend of mine who's a, who leads a great church in San Diego, and um, he's a traveling speaker like I've done for years. We're at a conference, and he had just planted this church about a year prior. And I asked him how it was going, because he is traveling a ton, and he started the church, and he had this phrase, and it's just stuck in my brain. He's like, Jose, let me tell you, bigger doors, bigger demons. This guy can make anything rhyme. I mean, like, he's, he's just a great communicator. He's like, bigger doors, bigger demons. He's like, man, I, he'd been following Jesus for years, doing some amazing stuff. He's, he's like, let's start this church, and he started listing out all of this pushback, all this trouble, all these trials, the bigger the thing that God wants you to do, the bigger the opposition at times. And so don't be discouraged when you're under a bigger trial. It could be that God sees great potential in you, great opportunity in you, great things in you, and he wants you to get to the place where you're more dependent on him, so he throws us in a trial. Jesus is faithful. So the question is, will we be faithful in the time of testing. But here's the big picture. All of these verses summed up, and I, I love this, and we're going to end with this. God is with you. That's, that's the first three scenes. John the Baptist, and then the baptism of Jesus, and then the testing of Jesus are all pointing to the same thing as God is with Jesus, and God is now with you. I was in Estonia, and is, I, it is so surreal to be with your brother, who we shared a bedroom. We never had our own bedroom. We shared a bedroom to, I went away to college from the time I was born to the time I was 18. Best of buddies. And we've laughed together, cried together, played together, done serious work together. And to see your brother not able to walk up three flights of stairs, because he had such a strong heart attack in January, that he's at about like 50, 60% capacity. And, I, and, I'm, and, and he's, he, they signed on the building you saw. They signed on it on January the 4th. Total elation. Like, he's been working on this for 13 years, and God gave him victory. He is with, about two weeks later, uh, he is with a bunch of church planters at a retreat pouring his life into these other young leaders so that they could plant churches, encouraging them, praying with them, crying with them all the time. He is in, in severe pain. Just thinks like, oh, 
And he wasn't feeling it on his left side, he was feeling it on his right side. And he's thinking it's like a muscle spasm. And he went to the doctor before the retreat and they gave him a muscle relaxant and all the time he's having many heart attacks. He went through the whole retreat having many heart attacks and gets back and it doesn't get better. And for days he is suffering. And he's, we were chatting, he's honest. He's like, I need to know why. I'm trying to serve God and, and why. But he's been realizing over these last few months I know this. I don't know the why, but I know this. God hasn't abandoned me. I'm alive. And the doctors said, like, he went in with one artery working at 20%. And he's alive and he's getting stronger. And God's doing something in their church that's hard, but beautiful. And people are stepping up and people are being raised up and people are taking more responsibility. And what does the future have? He doesn't know. But here's the beautiful thing. Whether you're on a high or you're on a low, God is with you. If you're in Jesus. Now, if you're not in Jesus, my friend, God is for you, always for you, but he's not with you. He is with those who choose to go his way. God's the supreme over the universe. God's the creator. Jesus is the savior. And either we go his way and receive blessing and trial, but in the end, victory. Or you could choose to live your life apart from God and scattered and erratic and a few highs and tons of lows and at the end of your life wonder why did I ignore the God who loves me? And so tonight the invitation is to receive this God who is already for you. We're gonna go to the table. We're gonna, we're gonna pray. We're gonna enjoy God. We're gonna worship. The band's gonna even come now. But tonight, let me just ask you, God's for you, yeah. But can you say with confidence like Jesus that the Spirit of God lives in you? Do you know that 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 the, the wreck that you have made in your life has been made clean? Not because you're good, not because you're awesome, but because Jesus Christ is great and he defeated Satan before the cross and then destroyed the work of the kingdom of Satan at the cross and in the resurrection. And are you willing to go the way of Jesus tonight? my friend, is a great night to follow Jesus. Now, I'm not lying. Saturday, last night, was a great night to follow Jesus. Monday is a great night to follow Jesus. So maybe you're already there. Awesome. Follow Jesus. But maybe you're not there yet. And the call tonight is that the God who is with us wants to reside in us. He is for us. He wants to dwell and make his residence right here. And what a hope what we have if you're struggling, I hope you're encouraged tonight. Jesus has not forgotten you. And so we're going to go to the table. We're going to pick up the bread and the cup. We're going to remember the Lord Jesus in the wilderness, defeating Satan to bring us victory. What hope, what life. Lord, we love you. I'm grateful that we can worship you.